breaking news tonight, the terrifying vehicle attack at the U.S. Capitol and the police officer killed. The car ramming two officers and slamming into a barrier at the Capitol. The driver jumping out with a knife and lunging at the officers. Police opening fire. One of the officers and the suspect killed. The Capitol placed on lockdown. A helicopter landing on the lawn. Later, a police procession for the fallen officer. The deadly incident coming less than three months after the riot at the Capitol. What we're learning about the suspect and the reaction from the White House. The new travel guidelines, the CDC saying fully vaccinated Americans can travel safely in the U.S. without tests or quarantine if they wear a mask. Also, the new guidance to resume cruises. But with cases rising again, the new warning this holiday weekend and the race to herd immunity inside the state leading the way. The first week of testimony in the Derek Chauvin trial, the chief homicide detective testifying that Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck was totally unnecessary. How Floyd's family is reacting. And new fallout from Georgia's new law restricting voting rights. What Major League Baseball announced it's doing in protest. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening and thank you for joining us. There is profound shock and sadness at today's violent death of another Capitol Police officer killed during a confrontation that left another officer injured and a suspect shot to death. A tragic and a staggering blow to an agency still traumatized by the loss of their own after the January 6th attack. Today's horror unfolded outside the Senate entrance to the Capitol when a lone man drove his car into the officers and then rammed a security barricade before confronting them with a knife, according to police. The driver shot and killed by police. Later, the fallen officer honored by fellow officers, his body driven away in a police procession. Kelly Jackson has late details. You can see the aftermath of the deadly attack just steps from the Capitol, where a suspect rammed that blue car into a barricade about 100 yards from the Senate entrance. I've never in my life seen this before. A helicopter arriving as part of a massive response. Oh, my God. The National Guard in formation after police say a suspect, identified by four senior law enforcement officials as 25-year-old Noah Green, drove into two Capitol Police officers and into that roadblock around one this afternoon. The head of Capitol Police says he jumped out of the car holding a knife, ignored commands to stop, and instead started to run aggressively towards the officers. They opened fire, killing the suspect, but not before those two officers on scene were hurt and taken to the hospital, with Acting Chief Yogananda Pittman soon after, visibly emotional as she revealed this devastating news. It is with a very, very heavy heart that I announced one of our officers had succumbed to his injury. Officer William Billy Evans, an 18-year veteran of the Capitol Police Department, killed. A line of squad cars, lights and sirens on, carrying his body to the medical examiner's office in a processional through downtown Washington. It's an almost unthinkable blow for a police force still reeling from what happened January 6th and the deaths of two of their own. Today, unlike then, lawmakers are out of town, back home for the Easter holiday. But on a typical day, senators and staff would have used this intersection to get to the Capitol from their office buildings across the street. That's where our own Leanne Caldwell was in lockdown today. I saw the law enforcement. I just thought to myself, what could be happening again? 
extra fencing put up after January's insurrection came down only recently, giving more access to the center of our democracy and in the heart of Washington, heartbreak tonight. And we are learning late tonight that the other officer who was hit behind me here is in stable and non-life-threatening condition, Lester. And Hallie, I know they've been following this at the White House. What's the president saying? So President Biden, Lester, has ordered the flags at the White House lowered to half-staff and says he and the First Lady are heartbroken. They are grateful to the first responders here. He's been getting regular updates from his Homeland Security Advisor and will continue to do so as this investigation goes on. Lester. All right. Hallie Jackson, thank you. We're learning more tonight about the man investigators say attacked the Capitol Police, including how he recently posted on social media that he was going through a crisis in his life. Justice correspondent Pete Williams has more. Law enforcement officials say tonight that the driver of this car who attacked police officers with a knife was Noah Green, 25, who'd been living in the Norfolk, Virginia area. Capitol Police say he was unknown to them. We do not have the suspect on file with U.S. Capitol Police, so there's no indication at this time that there's any nexus to any member of Congress. A biography on the website of the college where he played football says he was born in West Virginia but grew up in Virginia. On his Facebook page in his last posting a few weeks ago, he said he recently lost his job and wrote, quote, These past few years have been tough. These past few months have been tougher, adding, I've been tried with some of the biggest unimaginable tests in my life. And police say no sign this was a terrorist attack. It does not appear to be terrorism uh, related, but obviously uh, we'll continue to investigate uh, to see if there's some type of nexus uh, along those lines. Since the January 6th riot, when 139 police officers were attacked and three died afterward, security has been much tighter around the Capitol, with anti-climb fencing around the entire building and checkpoints for everyone walking or driving in, and with 2,300 members of the National Guard on duty. Capitol Police officers have been working longer shifts, too, a duty that's now much more dangerous. Hey, what are investigators doing tonight to try to figure out the motive? Well, they're going through his social media, they're talking to friends and family members, they're working to trace his movements in the hours and days leading up to the attack, and they're also looking tonight into clues that he did have some mental health issues. Lester? All right, Pete Williams in our Washington newsroom. Thank you. The killing of Officer Evans sent yet another chill through the country and highlighted the dangers facing Capitol Police. The force now forced to deal with another loss of one of their own. Here's Casey Hunt. That's the acting chief of the Capitol Police with this plea tonight. I ask you to please keep the United States Capitol Police family uh, in your thoughts and prayers. The agency reeling after losing Officer William Billy Evans, an 18-year member of the force, part of the Capitol Division's first responders unit. It's another one of their own. Evans' death just weeks after Officer Brian Sicknick lay in honor. He died after the January 6th insurrection. Another officer, Howard Liebengood, died by suicide. Rioters that day explicitly targeting officers. In the aftermath of the riot, officers working 18-hour shifts six days a week for weeks on end to maintain tighter security. Today uh, is just a, another example of uh, what they do every day for us to put their lives on the line and, and officers across the country. Casey, you cover Capitol Hill for us. Officer Evans, I understand, is someone you saw regularly. 
Lester, Officer Evans was a familiar face to me and to so many others who work at the Capitol every day. He was always friendly, quick with a smile or a hello. And lately, after the insurrection, senators, aides, reporters at the Capitol would often stop to tell Officer Evans and his colleagues, thank you. And today, he died manning the barricade to keep us all safe. Lester. All right, thank you, Casey. Joining me now is former New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton. Bill, in this case, the officers did their job. They stopped the suspect. But does each successive attack or uh, entry make it more of an attractive target for others? It actually does. Uh, at the same time, it hopefully will expedite uh, Congress getting its act together to come up with a definitive plan how to best protect the Capitol and the people who work there, as well as the thousands of visitors that would normally go there. Yeah, I mean, these buildings are symbols of our democracy, known for their openness, but will we have to accept and rethink this idea of security that maybe what we saw post-January 6th will be the norm? I think you're going to see a significant step up in security, in, but there's ways you can do that aesthetically uh, in the sense of uh, the fencing, the, the, the various barricades that need to be used, uh, but you don't want to make Washington, D.C. look like the Kremlin in Moscow. There really has to be a way to secure the capital and the people that work there without effectively making it into a fortress. That can, in fact, be done. All right, Bill Bratton, thank you for being with us. In just 60 seconds, critical new testimony against the former police officer on trial on the killing of George Floyd and the new guidance on air travel from the CDC. What you need to know. Today's testimony in the Derek Chauvin trial cut to the heart of the case. Were his actions, the way he held George Floyd down, appropriate? Today on the stand, the chief homicide detective recalled the amount of force used on Floyd totally unnecessary. Gabe Gutierrez is in Minneapolis. Today, Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman, the longest-serving officer in the Minneapolis Police Department, delivered a scathing rebuke of former officer Derek Chauvin's use of force on George Floyd. Totally unnecessary. What do you mean? Um, well, first of all, pulling him down to the ground, face down, and putting your knee on the neck for that amount of time, it's just uncalled for. I saw no reason why the officers felt they were in danger. For Floyd's brother, Terrence, the testimony was uh, crucial. That, that just builds my confidence more in the system. The defense is arguing that it was Floyd's drug use and underlying health conditions that killed him, not the 9 minutes and 29 seconds that Chauvin placed his knee on Floyd's neck. Minneapolis Police Department policy allows a police officer to use whatever means are, ne are available mm -hmm. to him to protect himself and others, right? Yes. But on Thursday, Chauvin's shift supervisor also said he went too far. When Mr. Floyd was no longer offering up any resistance, the officers didn't think that was a very extreme. Now retired, Police Sergeant David Kluger told a jury about his first phone conversation with Chauvin shortly after the incident. We just had to, had to hold the guy down. He was, uh, was uh, <coughs> going crazy. Some of the audio captured on Chauvin's body camera. Did he mention anything about putting his knee on Mr. After a week of emotional witnesses, the prosecution is now relying on law enforcement testimony to make its case for Chauvin 
went rogue. When the jurors are looking to make an evaluation, this is going to be the first time that they can actually look to other law enforcement and supervising law enforcement agents to say that this was or was not a proper use of force. So far, prosecutors have called 19 witnesses testimony resumed Monday lecture. All right, Gabe Gutierrez, thank you. Now to the COVID crisis and new CDC guidance on travel. While still urging Americans against non-essential travel, those fully vaccinated are now considered low risk. But Tom Costello reports there's concern about this holiday weekend. Heading into the Easter weekend, concern tonight that super spreader events could undermine progress against the pandemic, leading to a potential fourth wave as nearly 900 people are still dying every day. Crowds expected from beaches to backyards. At airports nationwide, a year of cabin fever quickly turning into the great escape. One and a half million air travelers on Thursday alone. With 22% of U.S. adults now fully vaccinated, the CDC, still recommending against non-essential travel, is also offering new travel guidelines. Fully vaccinated travelers do not need to be tested before or after traveling in the U.S. unless their destination requires it. And there is no need to self-quarantine. Fully vaccinated grandparents can fly to visit their healthy grandkids without getting a COVID-19 test or self-quarantining. Internationally, many countries are still restricting travel. But the CDC says those who are fully vaccinated and do travel internationally do not need to get a COVID test before leaving the U.S. unless required by their destination. Those passengers should get a negative test before returning to the U.S., but they don't need to quarantine when they get home. Also tonight, with air travel picking up, airlines are starting to do away with many of the waivers they've issued for ticket change fees during the pandemic. Airlines right now are starting to roll back these waivers on the cheapest fares out there. The really dirt cheap uh, advanced purchase fare tickets. Regardless of whether you have been vaccinated, you must still wear a mask when traveling. And late today, the CDC told the cruise line industry to create plans for vaccinating and testing both passengers and crews. Buster? All right, Tom Costello, thank you. The number of Americans who have gotten the COVID vaccine is growing steadily. Almost 102 million have now received at least one dose. And New Mexico, it turns out, is leading the way toward herd immunity. Gotti Schwartz is there. In the high desert of New Mexico, there are those that come with nervous hope. I'm hoping to God that I get it. I am to get it. I can't take a shot. Those who weep with relief. <laughs> one and done. It's all hands on deck across the state, which has the fifth highest poverty rate in the country and a literal army of National Guard soldiers, students, healthcare workers, and volunteers. We don't have a lot of resources, you know, in New Mexico, but we have a lot of heart. Today, New Mexico is closest to herd immunity. More than a quarter of the adult population here has been fully vaccinated, outperforming the rest of the country, and half of New Mexican adults have gotten at least one dose, far higher than the national average. For the state's deputy health secretary, Dr. Laura Barajon, speed, equity, and education have been key to that achievement. She credits community partnerships at every turn. It's not just enough to just get out vaccines out quickly. It's also important that we focus on people who are disproportionately affected. Here, that means a laser focus on zip codes, from mass vaccination sites to outreach teams in remote areas. The state even giving direction to pharmacy giants like Walgreens so they can vaccinate those vulnerable communities. A far cry from last year, when New Mexico was hit so hard, a 
one point, state police set up roadblocks quarantining an entire city. We had surge after surge, and we're just, you know, just trying to take care of as many people as possible. And then now, all of a sudden, you know, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, the nearby Navajo Nation is also seeing some of the highest vaccination rates. And from the governor on down, it's women at the helm of nearly every state agency tackling New Mexico's vaccination program in its fight against COVID-19. I think we just see each other as a, a team because we've been work all working so hard to, to make this happen. A team racing ahead to try to end the pandemic across New Mexico's every last mile. Eddie Schwartz, NBC News, Albuquerque. And up next for us, baseball's big protest against Georgia's new voting law. There's new fallout over Georgia's recently passed law restricting voting rights. Major League Baseball announced it's moving July's All-Star game and draft out of Atlanta in protest. The commissioner said the MLB, quote, opposes restrictions to the ballot box. There are strong jobs numbers out tonight. The U.S. seeing a hiring surge in March, and there could be even more good news on the jobs front for this spring and summer. Here's Jolene Kent. As America continues to reopen, tonight even more signs the U.S. economy is making a comeback. 916,000 jobs were added back in March, pushing the unemployment rate down to 6%. The biggest gains in construction, education, and leisure and hospitality. While encouraging, there are still more than 3 million jobs missing in that industry alone, like Derek Bailey, a travel specialist for 12 years. Before the pandemic, his business was thriving until travel grounded to a halt. That's very frustrating for someone like me who's always had a plan. We first met Derek a year ago. Three months of no income whatsoever uh, can really <laughs> go through the savings. He lost his job and said he had to find work in a new field, taking a $25,000 a year pay cut. Has it been difficult to make this pandemic pivot? Oh, 100%. I'm doing things I never thought I'd ever do, uh, working at a software company. But of the 22 million jobs eliminated since the pandemic hit, more than 8 million have yet to return. Over the last year, 78 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits which were often difficult to secure. I've tried at 1 a.m., 3 a.m., 5 a.m., there's just no getting through. <laughs> just the waiting game that's really um, unsettling for a lot of us. How can I survive? You know, how can I provide for this? At the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank, that's the question weighing on attorney and public defender Arlene Galarza, who lost her job last year. This is an art. While the March jobs report was strong, it was also uneven. Black unemployment, nearly 10%, double that of white unemployment, which is at about 5%. Lester? All right, Jolene, thank you. And before we go, a special note about our friend and colleague, Bill Neely. For more than 40 years, including nearly a decade at NBC News, Bill traveled the globe, covering virtually every major world event. But now, as Bill puts it, he's hanging up his mic. We're going to miss you, Bill, and wish you all the best. That's Nightly News, everyone. Thank you for watching. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. Detective gives damning testimony in Chauvin trial. during that time period. 
totally unnecessary. What do you mean? Um, well, first of all, uh, pulling him down to the ground face down and putting your knee on the neck for that amount of, uh, that amount of time is just um, uncalled for. Um, I saw no reason why the officers felt they were in danger, if that's what they felt. Um, and that's what they would have to feel to be able to use that kind of force. Have you ever, in all the years you've been working for the Minneapolis Police Department, um, been trained to kneel on the neck of someone who is handcuffed behind their back in a prone position? No, I haven't. Is that, if that were done, would that be considered force? Absolutely. What level of force might that be? That would be the top tier, the deadly force. Why? Because of uh, the fact that um, if, if your knee is on a person's neck, that can kill them. You were a patrol officer from 1985 to approximately 1993 when you took the sergeant's exam and were promoted. Yes. And so it's fair to say that since 1993, so 27, 28 years, you've not been on patrol in the city of Minneapolis. Correct. You're not out patrolling the streets, making arrests, things of that nature. No. All right. Um, and it's fair to say then that you're experience with the use of force of late has been primarily through training. Through what? Your training. Yes. All right. Meaning um, you're not out actively, other than perhaps arresting a homicide suspect, you're not out actively patrolling and uh, arresting people for lesser, less serious offenses. Um, no. I'm presuming that since 1985 until the present day, uh, tactics have changed as a police officer. Some tactics have changed, yes. Right. Well, Laura Coates, back to your takeaway, listening uh, to the repeated testimony, the very common methodical testimony of Lieutenant Zimmerman. Make no mistake about it, John, this was damning testimony. This blows out of the water the notion that Derek Chauvin was trained to do that which he did, that somehow it was part and parcel, baked into the recipe of every police training. Everyone knows that you do this. And remember, they were trying to distinguish between what bystanders who don't have police training, the MMA fighter, what he does or does not know, his training at the police academy. They distinguish between the off-duty Minneapolis firefighter who was trying to implore them to also allow her to render aid, distinguishing the EMT workers who are not trained as police officers. Then you go into the officers who are saying, actually, this is not how we're trained. And this particular lieutenant is saying, since at least 1985, he has been repeatedly trained that you know that somebody who's in the prone position or handcuffed is going to have difficulty breathing, move them immediately. Also saying that once somebody is handcuffed, he clarified the threat is essentially gone. Yeah, they may be able to kick you, but the use of deadly force is no longer needed here. If you have all of these things, the only thing the defense was able to try to do was try to suggest and insinuate that because of his tenure, because he's a veteran police officer and a homicide detective and no longer a patrol beat cop, that somehow he was out of touch on the use of force. Somehow he has no idea what altercations look like nowadays. And you think about it, John, how outlandish that is. Yes, officer training has changed since 1985. Yes, weapons have changed since 1985. 
but the human neck, the human knee, and our ability to respirate has not changed since at least 1985. And Chief Ramsey, the importance of this for the prosecution is you're, you're trying to win over the jury, uh, and you can't lose jurors on this question. Was, was Officer Chauvin acting in, in his view in a reasonable way with this use of force, or was this just beyond the pale? prosecution saying nine minutes and 29 seconds no longer any resistance uh, what power did you put in the testimony of this veteran officer again repeatedly being asked and repeatedly saying i just don't see it uh, this situation was under control and we were well past the point where any force anywhere near what we were seeing could be necessary well he's a seasoned law enforcement veteran i mean he's the most senior person in the entire department he's been on the job since 1981 he has spent a considerable amount of time at homicide so he is very familiar with investigating situations in which people have lost their lives. Uh, you know, I, I was just thinking when he said police training has changed. Well, yeah, it's changed. I mean, I went to police academy 50 years ago, 1971, as a rookie police officer. And even then, we were not trained to put our knee on somebody's neck for nine minutes. I mean, if anything, training and, and police policy and procedures got more restrictive in terms of use of force. The training is it's light years better than it used to be. I mean, if anything, the needle has moved in a positive direction, not a negative direction. And the actions of Chauvin are just unjustifiable, even when the defense is raising all these, you know, hypotheticals. What if this? What if that? It has nothing to do with what actually took place on May 25th of last year. Absolutely nothing. This case has to stand on its own. And his use of force in that situation has to stand on its own based on the facts and circumstances of that case. Not the what if, woulda, coulda, shoulda, what took place that day, and why did he use the level of force that he used for that sustained period of time? Is that consistent with policy and training? The answer to that is no. And so, Laura Coates, we are now at the end of the first week of testimony. Uh, five days of trial testimony, 17 days if we go back to some of the pretrial hearings and the selection of the jury and all that, but five days now for these jurors who go home for the weekend. Uh, I want to walk through some of what played out during the week, but I want to start with this, uh, especially as we watched Lieutenant Zimmerman finish his testimony, then the cross-examination, and then the redirect from the prosecutor. One of the challenges for a prosecutor, you can plan everything the night before, you can work with your witness the night before, but then you have to react. Uh, the, you have to be nimble and react to what you saw. And you mentioned uh, the defense attorney, Eric Nelson, he's trying, he's doing the best he can there with the material he has, uh, trying to say to your point, well, you've been on the desk for a long time. Uh, you're not in a patrol car. Uh, you're not a guy getting, jumping out of a patrol car in these tense situations. It's been a long time uh, since you've been on the street, you know, in the rough and tumble, if you will. And so then the prosecutor has to get back up, as Mr. Frank did, and walking through, well, let's go through this again. Uh, just your sense, your grading of the prosecution and their nimbleness in reacting. I think they were great at nim and being nimble at this because, of course, they're, they're not only up against trying to have the explanation to laymen about what is actually a common sense issue. They don't have to prove things that the average person would not be able to understand. The average person has a neck and a knee and understands the constriction of breathing. The average person would be able to understand what you would not advise your own child to do in rough play or otherwise. And so he's really trying to point out methodically, and I understand the constraints of the defense. And again, John, we have yet to see the defense case or the battle of the experts on that substantial causal factor of death and the autopsy medical examiner. But so far, the prosecutors are buttressed in their ability to understand common sense and what jurors are thinking here. You've got this idea, what I thought was very striking, 
was that every single law enforcement officer that we've seen so far, normally we hear about this sort of blue coat of silence and trying to protect one of their own. You saw a distancing of a 10-foot pole away from Derek Chauvin, not trying to filter their testimony through the filter of, hey, look, he's one of us, I can understand what he did. No, they were quite forthright and resolute about this officer being rogue in a sense. So I think that's very powerful. And, and going into a weekend, time is going to be the best friend of the prosecution because all these questions that have not been answered as to what would it have taken to take in his pulse, to take his, your knee off him? What would it have taken to do those things? That's lingering in the jurors' minds for Friday, for Saturday, for Sunday, into Monday. And we have no indication that the defense case is going to happen next week. This is going to stew and fester and not to the benefit of Derek Chauvin. And, Chief, to that point, uh, you're watching as an expert somebody, as you just mentioned, five decades of experience in law enforcement. You're also watching as a human being as this plays out. To Laura's point, the prosecution hopes that it won the first week. It knows this is a long journey. It knows the defense, you know, the prosecution controls the pace and the witness list right now. The defense will get that choice. Uh, but just from watching throughout the week uh, yourself, any, if you were a juror, are you going home with questions? The prosecution left me wondering this. Or are you going home thinking, so far, these guys have made a compelling case? Hmm. Well, the prosecution has made a compelling case, and the defense is fortunate that it's not wrapping up today, that there's still more to come, because quite frankly, they don't, they don't really have a leg to stand on right now, in my opinion. I do think it's going to come down to the more expert witnesses, especially the autopsy report, medical examiner. You know, what was the cause of death? Was the actions of Chauvin the substantial uh, contributing factor to his cause of death? You know, once you, you go through the whole thing about his enlarged heart and, and drugs and so forth, you know, and, and that's going to be critical. And who wins that battle? And that's going to decide this case, in my opinion, uh, because I think clearly uh, as far as what we've seen so far and what we've heard so far, this isn't something that they're going to be able to say at the end of the day that was consistent with his training and with the policy of the Minneapolis Police Department. They've lost that one. They can only hope now that when the expert witnesses come forward, they will find somebody who can testify uh, more in their favor uh, in terms of that uh, medical examiner's report. I think everything's going to wind up hinging on that.